I don't think uh, central banks are going to have the capacity to raise interest rates to the extent that the market's pricing in. The China slowdown is going to be more abrupt than is currently expected. The good news is that uh, it prompted a correction among some of these very famous sustainable names, and it can be a good time to buy some of them. Hello. If 2021 was the year that extreme policymaking got the world back on track, will 2022 be the year when we have to deal with the consequences? Reigning in a global system that's high on stimulus without dampening growth will be no mean feat. In fact, it's a catch-22 or catch-2022 scenario. Keep conditions loose and store up problems for the future, but tighten too soon and risk a domino of defaults and downturns. As we near the end of the year, we'll take stock with some of Fidelity International's chief investment officers to ask them for their outlook for the year ahead. Where are the key risks? What themes should investors stay across? And where might you find the best investing ideas of 2022? I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. Joining me in the studio are Steve Ellis, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, Romain Vaucher, Chief Investment Officer for Equities, and Anna Stupnitska, Global Economist. Welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us. It's a tradition in this penultimate podcast of the year that before we look ahead, we cast a glance back at the past 12 months. So Anna, I'm going to come to you first of all, if I may. Can you tell us your most memorable moment of 2021. In terms of uh, macro and market implications, we go back all the way to the beginning of the year, early January, um, and the uh, Georgia runoff elections and the win, um, the Democrat win and the control, the unified control of the US government. That completely interrupted the prevailing market narrative and uh, enabled uh, expectations for massive stimulus, not just for uh, COVID relief, but also for infrastructure um, and other stimulus, something that is still being negotiated. Absolutely. Uh, changed the course of lots of, uh, uh, lots of parts there. Steve, what marks the year out for you? Yeah, so I'm going to go back to the beginning of the year as well, actually to January. And, you know, we came into the year with, um, you know, just on the back of the whole COVID interruptions from last year. And suddenly we had um, what I would call a, a yield curve tantrum um, back in January, where you saw 10 year nominal yields, government yields in the US go from around about 80 basis points to a maximum of 175 basis points within the space of three months. And within the components of that, you saw real yields moving from about minus 100 basis points to minus 55 basis points. So, you know, the tantrum came from uh, investors pricing in higher real yields um, or less negative real yields and also inflation expectations. Normally, this kind of event, like we had in Q4 of 2018 and 2013, would have disrupted equity markets, would have disrupted credit spreads. But the biggest impact on this occasion was actually on strengthening the dollar. So I mean, a real kind of a big impact for, for markets from, from that perspective. And we'll come to the impact on on equities um, uh, later on, perhaps, particularly as we look um, forward. But staying with this review of 2021, uh, Romain, what's um, what's been the the moment that um, that defines the year? For us, a turning point has been Q2, Q2 this year, because Q2 last year, as usual, market on, markets anticipated a lot, so we had a reopening play 
in Q2 2020. Uh, uh, but in Q2 2021, we broke to life this reopening play with the first return to a pub in April and return to the office in May. And uh, suddenly we had to uh, assess if uh, real life would be uh, aligned with great expectations we put in place a year earlier. And so far, so good. Okay, thank you very much. So we're going to begin now the, the outlook for 2022. But I'm afraid that this, um, this idea of themes that have been started in 2021 um, stay with us because the, the theme of the year, perhaps the economic theme of the year, has been inflation. Anna, what's driving inflation now? And will it continue into the coming year? Will it dominate? So a number of drivers are still in place and they're turning into more persistent drivers. We have debated for the whole year whether inflation is going to be transitory or persistent. Uh, and those um, uh, supply chain disruptions, for example, that were or are related to the pandemic, uh, they're still there and they are slowly but surely affecting inflation expectations. And that is the main transition transmission channel uh, that we see affecting actual inflation. So we have supply chain disruptions. We also have um, wage pressures in the labor markets, particularly visible in the US and the UK. Um, and we also have um, uh, pressures and extreme dislocations in energy market partly related to strong demand to supply uh, uh, disruptions but also uh, to that 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 push to transition towards uh, net zero and while we think inflation is probably peaking uh, right now, it won't stay at this very, very elevated levels. We still believe that over the next uh, few months, over the next year, inflation will be uh, above target generally across the board. And this is what creates that the puzzle for central banks. You said you've been debating um, all year whether this is just transitory or, or becoming permanent. And um, it is a complex picture. Is there any chance that deflationary pressures could, could come into play in 2022? Well, I think while cyclically we are in the more persistent camp, and also there are some structural forces like uh, decarbonization, I do think that the longer term structural forces that proved to be disinflationary over the past two decades have not disappeared or reversed uh, completely since the pandemic. So we still have technology, demographic changes and globalization. Um, and this, these are the key forces uh, that will continue affecting uh, price trends in the long term. Uh, not necessarily in the same direction. So some of them are reversing to some extent, uh, and importantly, uh, the aging population trend uh, is now very much in play in China, and this is uh, this could be a big change for global inflation. Okay, um, a complex picture, as I said, Steve. You've pointed out many times um, how money supply has gone through the roof over the past eighteen months. But the winds are changing, aren't they? How's that going to play out? And uh, will that stimulus continue to affect um, prices um, or what happens as it unwinds? Yeah, um, I think money supply growth. I'd add one thing to what Anna's just been saying about inflation. I, I think inflation is still a monetary phenomenon. It hasn't been regarded by central banks for the last 20, 30 years or so because it's you know the transmission mechanism has been effectively broken especially since the financial crisis when banks were going through recourse and so on but i think the different thing which i've mentioned before about this cycle post um, you know march 20 
um, was that you know banks were in a much healthier position. They, you know, liquidity um, capital ratios were three times higher than in the financial crisis. So the kind of scale of monetary easing, the balance sheet expansion that um, central banks invoked last year was, you know, off the charts. You know, it was greater than all the episodes of quantitative easing since the financial crisis. And so that was very potent in creating very rapid money supply growth. So we saw M2 money supply growth in the US at you know 25% year on year. And it's way in excess of the kind of growth that we've seen, even going back to the 1970s. So that impulse, that monetary impulse, I think, is one reason why we've seen um, inflation on the rise. That tide has turned, and you're seeing quite rapid money supply deceleration now. So going down to a figure more like you know, 11 12% money supply growth, and the sequential numbers, the more recent annualized numbers, are in single digits. So I think that's the biggest risk for markets as we go towards the start of next year, is that the monetary accumulation that we've seen and then with the balance sheet uh, tapering that's taking place and the potential for rate hikes, that money supply growth and the lack of dollar liquidity growth could create some problems, at least in the short term, for markets. I'm certainly of the more persistent camp for inflation. I think it's, it is adaptive. It's there. But that monetary impulse is going to be less of a concern in my mind. This is now, you know, for the inflation problems, I think we've got the persistency of inflation now. These are more kind of structural arguments, the wage pressures, bottlenecks, and so on, the capacity issues that we're facing. And you talked about a short-term impact on um, risk assets, uh, asset prices. How do you see the medium term going, in, going through the year? Right now, I'm kind of cautious on risk assets, meaning credit spreads, equities, and so on, just general risk assets, from the point of view that I do think that central bank policy accommodation has been, you know, one of the bigger drivers of um, asset markets in, you know, with refinancing rates, the, the risk-free rate being so low, it kind of forces investors to look for yield, look for income, look for risk assets. As we go into the start of next year, I do fear that with tapering now uh, beginning to, uh, you know, on the, on the agenda and with the likelihood that central banks, like, for example, the US could actually, the, the Fed could actually start tightening policy um, by the middle of, uh, of 2022. Um, and you throw in uh, some potential tightening dot liquidity from the uh, US Treasury build it, beginning to build up its um, ten, Treasury General account. In other words, that could be uh, monetary tightening, it's quantitative tightening. The short term appears to me um, to be one of a drainage of dollar liquidity, but I'm not. Uh, I, I, I'm not like a you know perma bear here because I think we're still in a very reflationary environment. The biggest swing factor for me, and the key thing I think uh, to look out for in 2022, is bank lending. Now that's kind of the final booster. You've seen the central bank combination rate cuts, balance sheet expansion all these mechanisms by which dollar liquidity um, has been expansionary in the past, that the final booster rocket, if you like, for markets, for that dollar liquidity, I think has to come from bank lending. And there's tentative signs that it's beginning to pick up. All banks have got every opportunity, I think, now to start uh, lending, especially when the the economies open up, we see the bottlenecks freeing up and so on. And that will provide some dollar liquidity growth again. So I think we just, you know, be cautious in the short term, but you know any setback to risk assets, meaning credit spreads widening out, equity markets seeing some some you know dislocation, is a buying opportunity. I would say. 
Okay, lots there. Let me come to Roman uh, now and ask you, Roman, whether you sort of share that mixed picture that Steve was setting out. You know, some some concerns, um, but all is not lost if you get the um, the banks coming in to support things because equities really have had an awful lot of support over the past year, haven't they? How does that play out in equity markets in the coming year? So it's clearly an important question and our eyes are, as usual, and probably more than ever on fixed income colleagues and uh, and on inflation in particular. Because inflation can be seen as a green, amber or red flag. It's a green flag as long as we are moving away of this deflationary sweat, because we should not forget that just a year ago we were talking about a deflationary sweat. So if we are back in positive territory, all fine, it's a green flag and equity can be a good edge. Uh, against slightly higher inflation. If inflation is starting to move higher than the official target we shared for decades, so this famous 2 to 3%, at that time, it's not that bad for equities, but it could prompt a cyclical rotation. It's time to sell long-duration assets, so this famous growth at all costs, what you used to call frequently also uh, COVID winners, so stay-at-home winners. These internet companies are, are pretty expensive and could be materially impacted if an inflation new norm would be materially higher than two. And inflation is becoming a red flag if it's not only moving higher, but uh, but continuing to move higher. So uh, let me explain. If inflation is high and continue to move higher, so with a negative momentum, so higher than four and continue to rise, at that time, we know that there is nowhere to hide and equities cannot pretend to be uh, the ultimate place to hide because at that time, it will negatively impact margins. It will negatively impact at the same time, potentially multiples. So at that time, we would become much more nervous. For the moment, we are much more convinced that uh, this risk is much more transitory. So So we are somewhere between a short-term red flag but a medium-term amber flag, so much more in favor of a rotation within uh, uh, the equity markets and uh, uh, the beginning of a bear market. But nevertheless, we have to be vigilant. Vigilant indeed. And Anna, um, you're going to be vigilant watching the, the central banks. If that scenario plays out that Roman was setting out, how quickly do you think central banks would put rates up? Well, central banks are already moving uh, to uh, start withdrawing accommodation or tighten policy. Um, in fact, uh, uh, right now, uh, the majority of central banks are in the more hawkish camp. Uh, the BOE uh, is scheduled for an, for an imminent um, rate hike. Uh, the Fed uh, is likely to start tapering very soon, uh, before the end of the year, before the end of 21. Uh, some other central banks, major central banks, have already started raising rates and again withdrawing with accommodation. Um, they are really worried about their credibility as inflation targeters. And they are really worried about the risk of de-anchoring inflation expectations. So that's the dilemma. Do they prioritize taking control of inflation expectations uh, or do they prioritize uh, maintaining uh, very accommodative policy to nurture that growth recovery after the pandemic? Uh, It's a key question. And actually, this is our big, big theme for next year, probably the main theme for next year, Um, hence uh, the catch 2022. Ultimately, though, we believe that whatever central banks decide to do now, and some of them might hike, some of them might start tapering, um, that policy normalization path is still going to be 
quite shallow. And that is because of some of the headwinds that we're seeing over the next two months. And one of them, which is very big, is in fact a China slowdown. And that will affect the trajectory for central banks, the trajectory of policy. Uh, and also, ultimately, we think rates cannot go very high because of the debt burden. Okay, the debt burden. We'll, we'll come to these again um, uh, later on in the conversation, I think. Steve, um, rising rates means falling bond prices. I've always wanted to explain that to a fixed income chief investment officer. But um, now that we've got that clear, what's your advice to investors with a fixed income allocation as policy tightens? So I think there's quite a lot of negativity already embedded into markets uh, on fixed income on duration. Um, I mean, funny enough, I was, I was looking at the uh, some of the survey data showing uh, positioning uh, amongst asset allocators, and it's the most bearish positioning we've seen in 25 years of a of the Bank of America survey. Uh, so people are already kind of positioning for the anticipation of higher core yields because of the inflation backdrop and so on. But I have to say, I'm I'm not I'm I'm ta- I'm going to take the other side of that um, because I've, I'm of the view that whilst I do think inflation is more permanent, is more embedded. Um, I don't think uh, central banks are going to have the capacity to raise interest rates to the extent that the market's pricing in. So the R star, the equilibrium uh, policy rate, is probably going to be lower than people think. Um, it just takes a very small increase in interest rates now, I think, to start tipping things over the edge. That because of the debt burden that Anna just mentioned, you know, the the economy is very sensitive to. You know, there's a lot of convexity, in other words embedded into, um, into markets because of just a small rise in interest rates can have a more profound impact on growth than they've had before. Now, where does it mean? what does it mean actually for duration? Let's take 10-year Treasury yields, for example. I'm actually more on the bullish camp here because the only way the system is going to clear, meaning the debt is going to be refinanced, is to keep refinancing rates low. And therefore, I think real yields are going to have to be driven to increasingly eye-wateringly negative levels, meaning 10-year uh, real yields now in the US are about you know, minus 95 basis points. I think they could go to minus 200, maybe even minus 300. That's the kind of environment we're in, Richard. This is the the fear of policy misstep. Um, I can see you nodding there, Anna. Yes, I completely agree with Steve. Um, uh, In fact, I I, uh, do think that markets are now pricing way too much in terms of where policy can go, uh, both in the short term and and structurally, as Steve mentioned. Uh, And there's a lot of talk of policy mistakes. And I think particularly in the UK, given how sensitive the economy is to rates, uh, with the Bank of England choosing to actually start to hike rates rather than tapering, it's. I think it's a risky move. That's why I completely agree that the path from here is going to be shallow, even shallower than in the last cycle after the global financial crisis. So, Roman, how are you positioning then? Um, because we've got you know this this really intricate um, backdrop and the concerns about policymakers trying to get it right. Um, earnings this year, uh, twenty twenty one, have been very impressive, mostly thanks to the um, the surge in demand. How will that um, develop um, as as we as we go into the next few months? So it's a it's a very good question because the surge in demand is probably here to stay, at least for a couple of quarters. Because of uh, what uh, Steve and Anna mentioned, 
we are definitely creating an environment with negative real interest rates, encouraging people to consume. So growth should be there uh, in nominal terms, uh, if not in, in real terms. The issue we have, and this is why equity people are more focused on costs than on interest rates, because you can manipulate somewhat interest rates. You can maintain artificially interest rates very low. But at some point, you are creating what we are contemplating now. So you are creating shortages and you are creating costs coming from the supply side. And this is where we are facing an issue because we used to, to live in a, in a perfect world over the last couple of quarters with, as you said, a recovery on the demand side and with cost very much under control because we had the, the, the chance to, uh, to have some of our costs at very low level, not to say at zero. Just think about T&E, so travel and entertainment related costs. They were at zero for 2020 and early days of 2021. Then suddenly we will have to accept that yes, cost will move higher. And with shortages, including for labors, labor costs should move higher too. So we will have to find a way to maintain margins in order to avoid a margin squeeze. And it won't be a walk in the park. And the danger would be to cut capex in order to preserve margins. But if you are cutting capex, it means you could preserve margins for 2022. But what's next? If you are no more investing, you, you will put at risk the medium and the long run. So those are the, the, the risks. What do you think is the most likely um, outcome? Um, certainly in terms of the path of, of earnings, it's not going to be the same as, uh, as it's been, probably flat. Uh, which way do you think that costs will, will go? So costs for us will slightly go up. And this is why you are expecting margins to be at best stable or, or slightly marginally declining for next year. So instead of uh, enjoying what we used to call a, a, a square root shaped recovery, so we, where we were back to a level even higher than at the, at the beginning of, of this lockdowns, we will now do our best to preserve this and to plateau at, that, at this very high level. But the best case scenario from a margin perspective would be to be flat. So at the margin level, I would be tempted to say flat will be the new up for 2022 and perhaps for 2023. But it, it would be more than decent to deliver uh, results made of the same level of very high margins plus a top line growth because top line should continue to grow even if we are not naive because we are anticipating a growth at the top line level uh, 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 in the region of 7% but out of which more than half will come from inflation because the beauty in the equity world is that we are talking uh, in nominal terms but in real terms with higher inflation level yes this growth will also be definitely less uh, compelling than in 2021. Anna, let's talk about um, consumers in um, in the US. We've got fiscal support um, coming to an end uh, for them. We've got high energy prices, which is still a big problem. How do you think they will um, adjust? You've already talked about inflationary pressures as well. In some ways, um, they, they might benefit if you talk about the uh, labour costs that um, Roman was um, mentioning. But overall, what do you expect from consumers? Yeah, exactly. There are a few moving parts here, actually. Uh, first of all, of course, going back to excess savings, uh, $2.4 trillion accumulated in excess savings during the pandemic. Um, so uh, that is a really good situation for U.S. households to be in. Um, and in face of the declining fiscal stimulus, uh, where those uh, transfers are going to fall really sharply towards the end of the year, particularly for low-income categories, um, we can see there is 
some buffer from the excess savings that should keep consumption um, perhaps just above trend over the next few quarters. So on the one hand, you have falling fiscal impulse, um, but on the other hand, you have um, continuous recovery in the labor market and strong wage growth, particularly at low income levels. But then at the same time, because of um, COVID cases, continuous COVID cases, uh, consumers are not that comfortable uh, going back to um, spending on services uh, in terms of going out, dining out, etc. And we still see that activity quite suppressed. And that shows up in uh, spending on services. Um, those numbers are not as high as in terms of spending on goods and not back to pre-pandemic levels. So the COVID drug and the negative fiscal stimulus um, will become headwinds or will continue being headwinds for consumption. But on the other hand, there is excess savings, there is strong wage growth. And so I think we are likely to see continued uh, growth in consumer spendings at trend or just above trend over the next few quarters. So it's going to be more stretched rather than very front-loaded because of these headwinds right now. Mm -hmm. And let's um, leap over the Pacific to China because um, the, the divergence that um, started um, during the pandemic, China first into the pandemic, first out of it. Um, then we've had a year of policy changes um, in China, a focus on tackling debt and inequality. What does that mean for China's economy in 2022? Because, um, again, it perhaps leads where others follow, it seems. Is that pattern going to continue? Well, due to the combination of uh, tightening in terms of monetary, fiscal and regulatory policy that we have been uh, seeing over the past few months, uh, the China economy is slowing and actually quite abruptly. Uh, we are seeing uh, some of the PMIs already in the contractionary territory. Um, the conditions in the property market um, are quite concerning. The property sector accounts for 25% of China GDP. And seeing that negative dynamic within the sector means that the impact on the overall economy is going to be quite uh, dramatic, I would say. Um, this is one of uh, our big, uh, uh, I would say, out of consensus calls for the next few quarters is that the China slowdown is going to be more abrupt than is currently expected. And the spillovers to the rest of the world are also going to be meaningful. And hence my comment before that the central banks those that want to tighten or withdraw policy combination now, they will have to take that into account. The China shock to the rest of the world is going to be meaningful. Of course, we might get some policy support from Chinese policymakers because they are not interested in creating huge stresses or systemic shocks uh, propagating through the system. But because we see that they prioritize structural reform right now much more uh, than cyclical growth, that, that pain in terms of growth and pain in terms of markets, uh, to some extent, will be tolerated. And so 
we do expect a bit of policy easing potentially in China, but it's not going to be enough to offset the current shock that is already propagating through the system. So we do expect much slower growth over the next few quarters. And overall for the year, growth is likely to come in at potentially below 5%. And this is versus uh, five plus percent that the government is trying to target. So this is a big policy dilemma as well for Chinese policymakers. With, with an impact um, elsewhere on the world. Um, Steve, um, Anna was referring there to the real estate market. It was um, uh, Evergrande, the property giant, which collapsed. Do you expect there to be further bumps ahead in 2022? Are there going to be more Evergrandes? Or do you think that's now clearing out of the system and it's time to um, reassess China, or perhaps increase exposure there or generally in Asia and, and uh, its fixed income markets? The answer to your question about whether we've seen the loss of it, whether Evergrande is like the, you know, the, the tipping point, I think we're probably going to see some more duress in the property sector in China, that this is not the end point. Um, Evergrande, you know, had huge amounts of dollar liabilities, about 300 billion worth of liabilities. And whilst it's still not in a technical default because it's still paying or has paid dollar coupons, it's trading at price of 20 cents in a dollar. So it's an extreme case of a, a dislocated credit at the moment. Um, there are other cases as well, some of the weaker um, stress points in the property sector in China. Having said that, when you look at trailing defaults in China at the moment, it's coming. they're coming through China property. And those defaults running, um, the one-year trailing defaults run about 5.6%. So yes, it's probably going to go up from here and it could go up meaningfully if a credit like Evergrande did defaults, then that would create a you know significant jump in those that trailing default. The answer to your the other part um, of your question about you know is is value coming into China property? I, I, absolutely I do think so, yeah. Um, when you look at um, I'll I'll talk about Asia high yield in general, which includes about you know 40% of China uh, China property. When you look at spreads, credit spreads in Asia high yield markets at the moment, just at the index level, they're roughly about uh, you know 1,350 basis points. So you look at the capped yield. So you'd strip out say 20% of the um, extreme credits, you know the the, the more distressed credits. Um, the capped yield is around about 9.6%. So in a in a world of financial repression where you know, we know that high yield these days isn't that high yield in dollars or euro terms. And in many cases, you're getting negative real returns from even high yielding assets. The one spot that kind of sticks out here because value has been created is in China um, and Asia high yield in general. However, it's not for the faint hearted because, you know, you're, when you're calculating your total returns, you're looking at your, you know, your yield. Uh, so let's take that cap yield and you strip out uh, defaults and you look at your duration move and your your spread move it's still you're not you know still not the big green light here to jump in but um yeah in this i think value is being created here but we need to see some stabilization we need to see some support from the authorities so that it can stabilize the property sector it's there if you look hard enough. Roman, what about um, uh, equities? We, I mentioned before about China first in, first out. It has seemed to lead the way in, in many ways over the past couple of years. Um, is it still a useful barometer to you for what's lying in wait for other countries? Oh, definitely yes. Definitely yes. But China is reminding us that uh, this cycle was much more a reopening cycle than an economic cycle. 
so it can move up brutally and rapidly, but also expose us to a relapse at some point, including from a COVID perspective. Don't forget that uh, China is probably one of these remaining places, if not the only one, to target zero COVID, and which is today struggling with a few cases appearing here or there. So we are still talking about COVID. We are still talking about uh, CPI, and we are still talking about cost. So China is encapsulating everything. So China for us is uh, something very uh, important to look at and to see what could be the impact on profits. Because China is also a reminder, and it has been a reminder for the last two to three decades, that uh, you should make a difference between GDP growth and earnings per share growth. And if China has been obsessed with GDP growth for the last three decades, perhaps that now they are moving towards a strategy where they are less obsessed with growth in nominal terms and slightly more vigilant on how well we can allocate capital and how also properly we can compensate people for risks taken. By the way, reminding them that there is a risk associated with a high yield bond or something like that. So, but uh, Steve elaborated about that. So clearly for us, uh, this uh, this story uh, is now here to uh, to to be associated with potentially higher return on equity for investors, but lower growth level, and also higher prices. And this is the other lesson to learn. We have to be careful because not only China but also online shopping are no more deflationary forces. So this is why inflation across the globe is moving up because everywhere now. Year over year, uh, online prices are changing uh, and, and, and on the upside, not, in the, not on the downside as in the past. And you talked about a change in attitudes in, in China. We've touched on this already, that um, there's a very uh, movable regulatory um, uh, environment, that policy and, and approaches are, are changing. Um, does that mean that you have to approach this presumably as an investor with much more caution than you might have done before? Definitely, yes, because this evergrande moment uh, uh, is definitely a moment of truth, because suddenly you are condemned to invest into big stocks instead of investing into bet on, on, on the top line on the growth level. When the top line is becoming weaker, it means two things. It means that uh, you will be disappointed on the top line. You have to pick your, your investments and you have to avoid default because now we will have to deal with defaults. And we all know that these defaults could be extremely costly. So in our case, fortunately, we haven't been exposed to Evergrande as a shareholder, but we know that this is the very first of a longer series. So we will have to be extremely careful and to discriminate much more than you could have done in the past. As Steve was suggesting as well. And Anna, very briefly, the slowdown in China, um, where else is going to feel the impact of that? As always, there are uh, two key transmission uh, channels, uh, trade channels, financial channels. Uh, so uh, the countries that are exposed to China in terms of um, intermediate value added, so uh, in terms of supply chains uh, or commodity exporters, because of course China accounts for uh, the majority of global demand in most commodities, uh, those countries will experience the pain. So far, we haven't seen a big impact on commodities generally, but we're starting to see uh, that demand destruction at the price levels that uh, we have observed uh, over, the, over the past few weeks. Uh, and uh, ultimately, this will start transmitting uh, as... It has been uh, in the past via trade uh, and if we see some spillover into the financial markets via financial conditions uh, to the rest of the world. 
Thank you. Now, we're going to hear a little bit more about real estate, but from another of Fidelity's lead investors, Neil Cable is head of European real estate investing. And as he told me earlier, the real estate sector is seeing some dramatic changes beyond China and not least due to the pandemic. Here's what he had to say about what happens next. Neil, welcome to you. Um, it seems we're at a pivotal moment when it comes to investing in real estate. The pandemic, of course, has changed how we're using all sorts of buildings, including this one that we're in right now. Um, there's a mixed recovery within almost all sectors. And of course, yields remain at record lows. If you can, if you can take us through this, this picture, and of course, starting with inflation, because real estate is traditionally seen as a hedge. When does it become a threat for a real estate investor? Yes, I, I think the short answer to that is when it's decoupled from growth. People say you've got to buy real things like property um, in an inflationary environment, but it's not that simple. And when you analyse the data, particularly f- well for developed real estate markets like Western Europe, the US, etc., you, what you find is that it, it is quite a good to hedge against inflation. In other words, rental prices tend to go up along with all the other prices in the economy. So you're, you've got your hedge, you're protected from that risk. Um, but only when it's accompanied by growth. So if you get that horrible instance of inflation but declining GDP growth, that's when it doesn't work and it becomes quite damaging. And how how does it damage the, the, the portfolio? Can you explain the actual mechanics of what's going on there? Yeah, so you, you tend to get a lack of confidence, um, a lack of confidence in illiquid assets, a lack of demand, volatility goes up. And you can't secure those increases in rents that you normally would, and you start to get increases in vacancy and so on. So it's just, you know, you're in, instead of being correlated and going along for the ride, you, you become decoupled. Okay. I mentioned the pandemic at, um, at the start of this, and it, it's transformed societies um, and in some permanent ways. How is that playing out for real estate? Yeah, so the, the, you know, historically, commercial real estate. Um, when when IPD now MSCI created the first indices, they just did it office, retail, industrial shops, offices, and buildings where you made stuff or distributed stuff, and no one questioned that. It was perfectly intuitive. That's not so intuitive now. You know, humans spend up to ninety percent of their time indoors, and the pandemic has really accelerated a lot of the trends that were starting to emerge. Working from home being one very obvious one, where if everybody's going to spend two days per week in a home office, well, they need more amenities. They need less commuting. Um, The demand for office space goes down. Um, If we're all using Zoom and technology, not just for online retailing, but, you know, for video communications and so on, we need data centers with rapid response times located near large urban centers of population where people are actually using it. Um, We're all getting older and, you know... Before we need the hospital and healthcare, we need leisure and all this sort of stuff. So the actual, where we go indoors is going to change in the next 20 years compared to the last 20. And the types of buildings we're going to need are therefore going to be different. So that's the demand side, if you like. What about the supply? Because um, there seems also to be quite a, um, a radical change in the way you consider the buildings that you want to be investing in. How would you characterise that? The market will decide um, and, and regulation will decide. So, so planning has often been restrictive in the past until the moment when that demand changes and local authorities quickly realise, well, we've got to allow this office building to be a mixed-use building and occupy some leisure. So, you know, if everybody's commuting, for example, in public transport in a railway station, 
the building you might want to arrive at might have a yoga studio or a fitness studio, as well as some office space and maybe even some residential space. So I think I think the the buildings will be adapted in response to a lot of that changing demand. One of the big themes of this year, and it's not going to go away, is um, carbon emissions. And uh, although people might not have realised it, buildings are an enormous generator of, of, of carbon into the atmosphere. How is that being um, taken into account as, um, as buildings are developed? This is one of the hottest topics in real estate markets. And no pun intended, I'm sure. One of the biggest challenges. Um, I mean, I've often said in, in these kind of meetings we've had before, you know, 40% of carbon emissions come from buildings. Um, actually, around two thirds of that is the operation of the building, the generation of energy use, etc. The rest is transportation and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's what's bringing a lot of the challenge for real estate investors. You know, we, we used to just sort of say, our responsibility is a landlord. We provide the building. Your responsibility is the tenant. You pay the rent. Now the world has changed so that they're actually interested in talking to us as landlord to see if we can invest in the building for them to make it more efficient for them. Um, they don't mind us challenging them on their, you know, what business they're in um, and what their supply chain is like, etc. So you're getting so, down to that sort of level on absolutely. their own operations. So it's yes. not just the creditworthiness of a, of a tenant or whether they are going to hang around and, and, and um, continue to, to, to pay rent, but actually how they run their business that yes. you're having to monitor. Yes. And the pandemic actually accelerated this. So when when tenants started coming to us as landlords saying, wow, you know, the, the, the pandemic's here, can we talk about our rent? Um, you know, as being good negotiators, we said, well, can we have something in return? Can we get some green leases in um, our, our leases? And we thought they might resist, but actually the vast majority of people really engaged with us and sort of were very open to sitting around the table and saying, well, actually, we've got the sustainability challenges, so do you. Society does generally. How can we work together? You said that, um, as in so many areas, the pandemic had accelerated trends that were already um, there before. Where do you expect we'll be a year from now, as far as some of the things are that you've talked about today? Um, I think, you know, that, that sort of office retail industrial standard sort of classification of how you think about commercial property will rapidly change. It's already rapidly changing. When the financial crisis struck, um, that the category of other alternative uses like hotels, um, mixed use, all that sort of stuff um, was about 3% of indices. It's now about 12. So it's quadrupled over the last decade or so, um, but it's still a minority. I just think that's, you know, the whole way we think about real estate and measure it, the, diver the diver diversification we need to, to employ in order just to mitigate risks and achieve the returns we need to do. We're going to have to invest in healthcare, residential, life sciences, all these areas that have not been traditional in the past. And I think that that will be one of the most obvious accelerants. The head of European real estate investing, Neil Cable, talking to me earlier. Now, Steve, as Neil explains, investors' appetite for green projects or even longer-term brown-to-green transition investments continues to grow. How will debt markets respond to that in 2022, do you think? Yeah, so I think that's um, you know, something which investors are looking at, looking at green and brown bonds and so on. And, and I think there's some place for, for those type of instruments. Uh, but um, you know, I, I don't think uh, you know it's a be all and end all for um, for uh, you know many many issuers will issue them to get authenticity and credibility. But you know, in many cases, we feel that um, you know it's better to do your homework. 
to do more of the ground, you know, bottoms up type of analysis because, you know, sometimes it's better to find credits, bonds, which, um, you know, where the issuer is actually genuinely going through a transition where they, you know, adhering to whether it's climate change policy or, you know, some, you know, any part of the ESG chain really, rather than necessarily just buying uh, a green bond or a brown bond for the sake of buying a brown, a brown bond. Let's talk about the spike in energy prices, Roman. How much is that going to knock the sustainable investing movement? Um, does, it, does it suddenly hit a wall of reality when you see prices move like that? It's definitely a stress test fossil fuels versus renewables. But what is a good news for the long run can be a bad news for the short run. Because it's remaining a very good news for the long run if precisely energy prices are materially higher. And even more than that, CO2 prices are becoming much higher than expected. At that time, it's definitely the best way to encourage now profitable investment in renewables. But of course, over the very short term, as the energy sector is the only one reflecting in real-time prices at sales level, it's good for them when prices are moving up over the next two to three quarters. It's definitely very good for the energy sector. Most of the time, underweight, um, if not massively underweight, in sustainable portfolios. But don't forget that we are long-term investors. And over the long run, it's easier to be profitable for renewables with higher oil prices, with higher gas prices, and with higher most, last but not the least, CO2 prices. And this is the biggest unknown. And uh, to, to, uh, to Steve's point, I think our challenge is to identify investment IDs not at risk if CO2 prices are going through the roof. Because we don't know. We have no clue about what will be the CO2 price in one, two, three years from now. But probably higher sounds like a safe bet um, there. What, what do you think the sustainability themes will be in 2022, Roman? A key element will be related to pricing power. Because, of course, as inflation is at least for the next 12 months a significant threat, we have to be sure that investing companies are able to pass this cost inflation to, towards the end consumer, even if it's not pleasant for the end consumer. And we will have here or there cases of a very severe margin squeeze. And it's interesting to note that even governments are sometimes embarrassed to see that gas prices are going that high and are tempted to ask utilities to do to, 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 to accept a margin squeeze. And this is why for the next 12 months, we have tended to be long pricing power and short regulatory risk because we, we can wake up with very negative surprises uh, in these sectors where uh, a regulatory can play a, a very visible role and not for the best. Well, we're almost at the end, um, but now it's the moment you've all been waiting for, the rich pickings parlour game that is hotcakes and hot potatoes. What would you drop like a hot potato? What would you buy like a hotcake in 2022? So a slightly expanded section then. Now, I want to hear about concrete investment implications of what we've been discussing and the hidden risks. Where should we be avoiding unpleasant surprises in the year ahead. Yeah, so let's start with the uh, the top picks, the hot cakes. Um, I think next year is going to be continuation of the inflation theme, so persistent inflation, but real yields been driven to more and more negative territory. So um, it was one of my top picks for this year, for 2021, and it's going to be for 22 as well. Um, in that, uh, I think you should be buying inflation protection. So, you know, a short-dated global inflation bond fund, I think, is still going to be pertinent for next year. Um, 
I would also say that um, I think there's a risk here of a policy mistake by central banks in that they start the tightening process but find it very difficult to continue because of um, the uh, the collateral damage it does to growth and tightening of financial conditions. So I think the market will have to reprice those forward-looking rate expectations. We're going to be, in other words, faced with financial repression for a protracted period of time. Um, I don't think we're in a deflation. You know, the longer-term uh, story is one of deflation. I do think it's of reflation. So, but lower yields, reflation. I think it's a good backdrop for um, for high-yielding assets. Uh, so, notwithstanding my concerns about maybe some tentative pickup in default rates in in, in global high yield. Um, I do think that's going to stay low by historical standards. So you want to have exposure to um, to high yield, meaning US high yield, Euro high yield, even Asia high yield as well, where some value has been created. Okay, so you've got regional um, flavor in there as well around the high yield and inflation protection. But what are you dropping? What are the hot potatoes? That's a hard one, actually. Um, I'm going to make myself quite unpopular. I still, um, I would say I'm still, despite all... The, the evidence against me, I, I think cryptocurrency is a, one where when the tide goes out and central banks start draining liquidity um, and try attempting to, uh, to invoke interest rate hikes, I think that will be a more damaging environment for crypto. Perhaps not as immune as some of the uh, protagonists um, uh, would, would suggest. Okay. Um, Roman, what about equities? Uh, what's the style of investing that is going to be favoured in 2022? So contrary to last year, where our call was in favour of a cyclical recovery, because it was a reopening place, so it was much more a traditional type of arbitrage, slightly less growth-oriented, slightly more cyclical, not to say value-oriented. This year, as the dividing line would be slightly different. It's about pricing power. And there is pricing power among some cyclical names and even deep cyclicals. And, and there is a pricing power issue with a theoretically defensive names. So for us, pricing power will be key. And it will be also time to, uh, to, to size this opportunity to buy some of the sustainable preferred where markets are worried because clearly energy prices are moving brutally up. So the good news is that uh, it prompted a correction among some of these very famous sustainable names. And it can be a good time to buy some of them. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, I think, uh, to Steve's point, um, we, are, we have to stress that uh, uh, debt can be an issue. This evergrande moment uh, is not benign. So we, we should probably pay attention to leveraged companies because the danger is to be complacent and to think, oh, guys, everything is okay. Real rates will remain very low. But, but even if real rates are remaining very low, not to say in negative territory, when nominal interest rates are moving up, it's creating a stress for this leveraged company and it's not time to, 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 to invest in highly leveraged companies. There is another hidden risk, and the last one I would mention, which is corporate income taxes. Because we are at the beginning of a completely new story. We have turned the tide. It's starting to buy it on, on earnings per share after tax for the very first time, for the very first time over the last three decades, corporate income taxes will start to move up instead of moving down steadily. A very different uh, environment to be aware of. So you've painted the, uh, the, the, the overarching um, themes there for us. If I press you on uh, your specifics, your hotcakes and your hot potatoes. I'm, I'm tempted to be nuanced on, on China and to say there is a, the best and the worst there. Uh, the worst because uh, they are taking the risk 
to manage a property bubble. So I see, we definitely think it's too early to invest in the property sector in China. They could face a kind of a Japanese moment as in the early 90s in Japan. But the very good news contrary to Japan is that it will be time to reinvest in China outside of the property sector because they are not facing a stock market bubble like in Japan and they are not denying the, 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 the issues they are facing on the property side. So it could be a, a manageable story opening the door for opportunities in China, but outside of the property sector. And Anna, coming to you finally, what are your hot cakes and hot potatoes for 2022? So my hot cakes uh, would be about sustainability um, and uh, carbon prices. Uh, whatever shape or form uh, one can get exposure to rising carbon prices. I think this is big theme, not just for 22, but obviously structurally, to achieve transition, net zero transition by 2050 or any other date in the future, we need to see a huge increase in carbon pricing, whether it's direct or indirect. That's my main hotcake for 22. And in terms of hot potatoes, I'll go back to my um, comments about China and the big growth risk. Uh, coming from there. Uh, and again, uh, related to what Stephen Roman was saying about the China uh, property sector in particular, I think that that shock, the slowdown that we are still to see will manifest itself in much lower commodity prices, uh, those related to property construction, whether it's steel or cement. Um, and I think uh, from a more cyclical perspective, uh, this would be the main perhaps way uh, to express this, this slowdown in China uh, that we are going to see over the next few quarters. So that's my main hot potato. So China steering things well beyond its borders, it sounds like, for 2022. That brings us to the end of this Outlook Rich Pickings. Thank you so much to my guests, Anna Stubnitsko, Romain Vaucher, Steve Ellis and Neil Cable. You can read the full 2022 Outlook from Fidelity's Chief Investment Officers and the Macroeconomics team at fidelityinternational.com and your local Fidelity website. The producers today are Seb Morton-Clark with Sophie Brody and technical support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, wishing you a very profitable 2022. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website.